I am glad you're here, and I'm glad I'm here as well. It's a joy to be with you. Neil asked me to come and preach. We've been friends for some time. I served the, the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Westlake Village, and uh, Neil was just getting out of seminary, and he was looking, he was in the process of ordination, and he, so he had a space of time. He didn't have a job. He needed a job. Our uh, youth pastor left, so we asked him to come in and fill in for a year, and he didn't want to do it because he hates youth ministry. <laughs> but he did it anyway, and he did a great job uh, as an interim youth pastor. And we became friends, and so we were excited when he came to be your interim pastor here. Uh, I guess he's following in my footsteps because after I left Westminster, uh, I went uh, to Emmanuel Presbyterian Church right in Thousand Oaks and was their youth, uh, their youth, their interim pastor for about almost three years, a long interim. And then I did six more after that, and I did retire once, and then <laughs> I went back and... Uh, did a couple more short things, and now I'm fully retired. Uh, my name is Dale Reidenauer. My wife, Wendy, is here with me. She taught school at Westlake Village for um, 25 years, and we have two children, a son and daughter, and sorry to tell you, they both live in San Francisco. <laughs> but we have two grandchildren, two grandsons that I'll tell you about in a moment. And so that's an introduction, and the reason I do that is because last night, if a gentleman sitting down here when I got up says, so who are you? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, I'm still working on my identity, I'm not sure. After uh, Sunday after Christmas, the pastor of our church, we attend a new church development of the San Fernando Presbytery, it's called Lightshine Church, it's in Westlake Village, we actually meet in the YMCA. That's, that's where we meet. It's a brand new facility, very nice. Uh, we meet there. He preached on Mark 1, chapter, verse 1, and then the following section about Jesus calling the disciples. And John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning of the gospel. And that intrigued me, and I began to think about, so where are the other places in Scripture that, it, that the Scripture uses the word in the beginning? Well, you know, you know when the first baseball game was recorded in human history? Surely someone knows that. In Genesis 1-1, in the big inning. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, I thought of Genesis 1-1, uh, the creation, first creation account in Genesis 1, and then John, and then again in uh, Mark, and then in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, and for 14 uh, verses in the prologue to John's gospel. And so I began thinking about this in the beginning, and at that time I started working on the sermon for here, because I always like to give people fresh meat, <laughs> not recycled. Uh, and it's fresh to me, and I, I learned through the process. Uh, and I was thinking about that in the beginning process, and so I read the scriptures, and I thought, ah, there's a theme in the beginning. So I want to read to you the scriptures before we delve into uh, the rest of the sermon. Genesis, beginning with Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 31. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we jump down to the last verse. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then we go to Mark's Gospel at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll read the section 16 to 21. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Down to verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then John 1.1. This is a scripture, by the way, the prologue to John, John 1, 1 through 14, that every Christian ought to know where that is and what it means. This is central to our faith, as you'll see a little bit later. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. And then jumping down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, capital O, capital O, one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we pray that as we come before you, having read Scripture, and as we listen with our ears and our heart, we pray that you will open our heart to you that we might respond, open our ears so that we hear only your voice. And may we leave here empowered to be your people in your world that you created good. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Now I believe each one of these scriptures that we read have something important to say to you as Stonebridge Church. Something that I think you, you would want to hear, not anything new, not anything that you don't already know, but a reaffirmation of the things that you do know. It's particularly important during this interim time. So my thoughts are going to be centered on three words, creation, mission, and focus. And we're going to have uh, three points for my outline the creation of Stonebridge, the mission of Stonebridge, and the focus of Stonebridge. So let's begin with the creation of Stonebridge. In the beginning, God created, and let me paraphrase here, God created Stonebridge. Do you believe that? You have to respond, because last night I got some response. <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, the first entire chapter of Genesis declares... God's goodness of creation. And after every stage of creation, God looks at it, he sees the creation that he just made, and he says, it is good. And then at the end, on the sixth day, he looks at all of his created order and marvels and says, it is supremely good. Our English word good doesn't quite capture what the Hebrew author intended when he used the Hebrew word that we translate good. 
The Hebrew author intended it to mean it is what is beautiful, it is what excellent, what is of value and of high quality. Now, a Kia may be a nice car, and it may be good, but a Rolls-Royce in the Hebrew sense is good, excellent, beautiful, of high quality, right? A silk flower buffet, a bouquet may be beautiful, but a cut flower bouquet that a husband gives to his wife, that's good. Do I have an Amen. Last night, the only one I did was my wife. So. <laughs> so the author of Genesis was saying that the world of creation has great value, the greatest and highest value. It has value in terms of itself, no matter what it does for us, how useful it is to us. That's not the gauge of its usefulness. In and of itself, God says it is supremely good. Stonebridge, I believe, as some of you do as well, is a creation of God. In the creation account in, in Genesis chapter 2, you know, chapter 1 is one creation account, chapter 2 is two creation accounts, which are a wonderful thing because they give us a full view of God rather than just having one. So it's very important to have those two. Uh, the author uses the word for the creation of humanity, a Hebrew, a Hebrew word, bara. And it's not used elsewhere. It is used only of the creation of humanity. And it means a creation without analogy, that there's nothing else like this. There's no other creature, there's no other thing or being like this one. God created us, he created us in his image. Nothing else is created in God's image. So the Hebrew writer uses this really technical word that's not used elsewhere, bara, to say this is a creation without analogy. Now, I believe we can say the same thing as Stonebridge Church. It is God's creation that has no analogy. There's no other church like Stonebridge Church. Now, every church has things in common. All churches have things in common. You have worship. You have programs. You have people. You have problems. All the things that go with being a church. There's some commonalities. But this church is created, as all churches, unique. We can say that God barred this congregation. And God looks at it, and as he did in the first chapter of Genesis, he says, it is good. In fact, it's not just good, it is supremely good. And so what I want you to take home and to remember is that there is nothing like you, this church, that you are God's creation that has no analogy, there's no other church like this, and God has pronounced you good. So Stonebridge Church, creation of God, is good. Just as God gave Adam and Eve a task to do, they were to be his gardeners in his garden. They were to be the stewards of his earth, the representatives of his on earth. He gives to the church, universal, and a Stonebridge Church, a job to do. Our second scripture from uh, Mark's gospel points to this. Mark begins his gospel with the beginnings of the gospel. Now, it's important, and so here we're going to look at the mission of Stonebridge. As important and as miraculous and as wonderful as the first creation, this next creation that is about to happen 
is equally as important and beautiful and wonderful. It's the beginning of the gospel story of Jesus Christ. God created the world good, handed it over to the care of the highest of his creation. They were his representatives, but unfortunately, humanity didn't carry out the mission of God that he asked them to do. They became disobedient and rebellious, unwilling to do as God directed, and so the entire created order was tarnished. It was blemished. It was broken. And even the image of God in which we are created, yes, we still have the image of God, but it's broken. It's not shattered, but it is tarnished. It is bent. It is cracked. So God has given to the church a responsibility just as he gave to our first parents. The mission of the church, you were created by God as good with a mission to fulfill. God didn't create the church to simply sit on a lounge chair with a large pizza, pizza, a supersized Coke, a tub of popcorn, and an order of hot wings to binge watch Breaking Bad or a marathon of the Three Stooges. No. However, I think that if we threw in a half gallon of Rocky Road ice cream, maybe, maybe that would be our mission. Nope. God has given us a mission to do. And notice what he did at the beginning. Right after he, he, Mark says, in the beginning of the gospel, then a few stories down, Mark has him call the disciples. He's walking beside the sea. He sees the disciples and he calls them. And here's how Mark writes it. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fisher of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He called them to be fishers of men. And notice there, and Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. It wasn't in their own power and their own abilities. It was in the power that God would give them when the Holy Spirit came at the day of Pentecost. You remember how they were hiding behind locked doors. They were afraid. They thought that the authorities, the religious authorities, were coming after them next. And they're not fulfilling the mission. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fuses them with power, and they became powerful witnesses to Jesus Christ where the the gospel began in Mark. So it's not in your power that you become fishers of men. It's Jesus Christ makes you, someone who invites people into God's kingdom, who disciples them that they might grow in faith, and be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Church Universal and so Stonebridge Church has the same mission as the first disciples to invite people to be followers of God. In the interim time, it's a good time to do some hard thinking and work to identify the unique ways in which God has called you to fulfill the mission of the church. How has God gifted you to be the the announcers of the kingdom that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ? 
How has God gifted you to invite people to participate in the rule of God by following Jesus' footsteps? Now, it may be as you've done in the past. Or maybe in new ways, because new people have come into the church and they have differing gifts, and so the gifts of the, the corporate body, the profile, the gift profile of the church has changed. And there's other things that you need to do. Or maybe a combination of these two. You may have to conduct some funerals for old programs that are no longer viable and go through the labor pains of birthing new programs that fit with who you are now and not with who you were in the past. The interim time is a time when you do that hard thinking because, you see, as we all know, the times they are a-changing. Whatever you decide, must have as its end goal to invite people to be followers of Jesus. The gospel story hits a major road bump, as we know, in the crucifixion of Jesus. But then it comes to a good ending in the resurrection. But before the resurrection, the disciples have lost their focus. As I mentioned, they're behind locked doors, afraid, fearful, hiding. So let me add a third thought to our ideas of Scripture, and that is focus. That's a, a time of a new beginning, and your interim time is a new beginning. What is the focus of Stonebridge Church? Let me use technology or screens as an example of how easily we can lose our focus. Screens are a metaphor for all that attract us and distract us to help us lose focus, not help us, but cause us to lose focus. Did you know that many of the tech billionaires in Silicon Valley send their children to a very private and expensive, exclusive school called Waldorf? At Waldorf, they have no screens in the classrooms, and they don't permit their children, the students, to bring screens to school. Now, the tech billionaires know something. They're aware of what the, the possibility of what screens can do to the developing mind of a child. And that ought to give us pause. We have two grandsons. One is two and a half years old. The other is four months. As I said, both are in San Francisco with our son and our daughter and their spouses. I do have pictures of them. <laughs> they are the cutest and smartest kids in the world. <laughs> so after the service, you want to see them. We've got lots of pictures. But we were on a, a trip with our daughter and son-in-law and the four-month-old, because they, they were both on paternity, maternity leave, paternity leave. Uh, and they said, we can go anywhere in the world, take a four-month-old. So they did, and we said, can we go with you? And they said, yeah, you can come be our nanny. So we were the nannies for, for our children. But I noticed one day we were in, in an uh, Airbnb, and, and we're sit, I'm sitting there on the couch, and, and our daughter puts the uh, four-month-old four down on a blanket, and he arched his back and his neck. And he, what he was doing is I had the TV on, which was behind him. He was arching his back and his neck four months, and trying to look at the TV behind him. 
And that was very illustrative to me of what screens can do to attract us. Now, they are both, both of our the sets of parents, our, our children, are trying to limit their children's uh, time before screens. And the other day we were talking to our daughter on the phone and I said, hey, I said, Krista, I said, your son's going to make it into my sermon. He says, oh, great. First time he's in a sermon. And she said, what are you going to say? And I said, well, I'm going to say that uh, you're probably going to lose the battle on screens because TV is too good a babysitter. And she said, yeah, I'll have to cop to that and <laughs> admit that I'm not above using the TV as a babysitter. So we may be losing our, our uh, battle with screens, but I know that they take away our focus. You walk into a restaurant, four people sitting at a table, all on their phones, instead of talking to each other. I know that when I walk into a sports bar or a, a restaurant that has TV screens, I'm compelled to watch it. So screens do distract us. Or tragically, someone is looking at a text on their cell phone or trying to text and they hit another car. Screens do distract us. So I'm using that as a metaphor of what can distract us. I do know this, that as fallen humanity, it's easy to be distracted and lose our focus. Screens attract our attention. What are the screens that are in this church that draw us away from our mission? They could be, but not necessarily limited to, what I call the edifice complex. You know, if you build it, they will come. Or the church is so important, the buildings themselves are the focus of that congregation. I, I, met a, a, I was at a church once, and I was shown through it. They were interviewing me for a job, which I didn't, go, didn't get and wouldn't have taken because I found out what it was like there. Uh, taking me through the classrooms, I noticed there was no art from the children on the walls. There was nothing on the walls of the educational room. And I asked the fellow to take me, I said, I, I noticed you don't have any wall. Oh, no, that's not allowed. I said, it's not allowed in Sunday school for children? Yeah, because it, it'll harm the walls. And I thought, that's a focus on the building that's forgotten the mission of the church. Or it may be a focus on organization. We are so very efficient that the point that the organization or the, organi the organization surplants the organism. The organization becomes an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Now, I'm obviously not against organization. I'm a Presbyterian. We pride ourselves on how organized we are, right? But that can become a God that distracts us from the real God when it becomes an end in itself. Or you may uh, have power issues, and every church does. Power is not a negative thing. It's simply how you use it. But within churches, there are power struggles, often witnessed by trying to decide what's the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. People want to be a big fish in a little pond, and they want to grab some power. 
And if that's true, then that becomes an issue because what they're after is to gain more power for themselves. And that distracts us from our mission. Now, there are many other things that can distract us and cause us to lose our focus. But let me change the metaphor from screens to a bicycle wheel. Now, we all know that a bicycle wheel is made up of four parts. The tire, which is rubber, and that's where the rubber meets the road. The rim, spokes are attached to the rim to the hub. Now, you can remove some of those parts. You can take the tire off and the bicycle will still run. It won't be very sturdy and you won't be able to steer it very well, but if you take the tire off, you can, you can ride on the rim. You can also remove some of the spokes, the spokes that connect the rim to the, uh, uh, to the hub. And that bicycle will still go. Again, the control will be limited and it won't be a comfortable ride, but it'll still go. The one thing you can't remove is the hub. Absolutely essential. It is the hub that holds the whole thing together. And what our scripture in John 1.1 is telling us is that Jesus Christ is the hub. He is our focus. He is the center of our faith. Remove him and the entire enterprise collapses. So we see this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and that's a technical Greek word there, the logos, which means wisdom, communication, one who brings the communications of God. It's a, it's a very technical philosophic Greek term filled with an abundance of, of meaning that I can't do justice to here. But in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. And this creator, redeemer, who was at creation, who created the world, became our redeemer. And as John writes in the 14th verse, the Word became flesh, this Logos, the revelation of God. This Logos, this Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, and in this translation, one and only are in cap, the, the uh, O's are in caps, the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's a simple truth. As a church, you have a mission. That mission is to call people to be followers of Jesus. But you must keep your focus on Jesus Christ and not lose that focus. You are a local expression of a worldwide church. And God has created the church and so you. And God created you and declared that you are good. You are a good creation of God, supremely good. And as God gave our first parents a mission to complete God has given the church a mission, and that is to invite people to become followers of Jesus Christ. To do so, keep your focus on him. Amen. And let us pray.